that all of you could join us. Uh, we hope that you learn more about your brain and how to keep it fit and healthy tonight. Um, and so it's with my great pleasure that I turn it over to our MC for the evening. Some of you will recognize him as the award-winning um, sports presenter and reporter for Channel 9 News, who's covered exciting events like the 2008 Olympics, um, local sports events, and tonight, our ANS public lecture. So please join me in welcoming our MC, uh, Tom Wren. Thank you, Lindsay, and uh, on behalf of the science community, thank you so much for having me here this evening. It is a little bit different for me, and I'm also going to be just like you in the audience tonight, hoping to learn a little bit more about the brain, something I don't use enough. So uh, I'm very much looking forward to seeing and hearing from the professor and asking a few questions after she's completed her lecture to us. The way things are going to work for us this evening is uh, the professor will come up here and uh, do her lecture for about half an hour, 40 minutes or so. And then after that, I'll conduct some questions just to my right here for about 20 minutes or so. And then what better way to finish things off than to take your questions from the floor. So please don't be shy, uh, don't be bashful. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the professor has no time constraints tonight, so we'll try and keep it to an orderly fashion. We've got a roving microphone, but we really do encourage your participation after everything has completed formally. Just a quick note as well, I'm sure you would have seen as you're walking in the bathrooms just out, so if you need to use the amenities throughout the uh, evening, that's just where you need to go, back out the exit, and then feel free to come back in. But a fantastic turnout tonight. Um, Selena was just saying that uh, it's one of the biggest she's ever lectured to. So she's a little bit nervous. I'm a little bit nervous as well, but I'm sure we'll have a great time and learn a lot more and feed a lot of information between us tonight. Well, as you can see behind me, neuroscience of brain resilience, health, fitness and addiction. What does it all mean? Well, that is why we have called in our expert tonight. And just a little bit about her. Uh, our guest speaker studied mathematics and then completed a pharmacy degree before becoming a pharmacist. Her career path was, however, to change dramatically when a family illness impacted significantly on her life and also her family. She decided to understand more about the brain and completed her PhD in neuropharmacology in the mid-90s, and over the next 25 years has continued to study and learn and continue her work, firstly with a postdoctoral fellowship in neuroscience, which she studied in Canberra. She's worked tirelessly on turning basic research discoveries into treatments for neurological problems such as addiction, pain, stress, anxiety and depression. She's written dozens of scientific papers, I think it's into triple figures now, and has presented her findings to, uh, findings to government organisations, to companies, institutions, high schools, community organisations. She's written books including Smashing Mindset, has a podcast, Shining Mind. She's a media star, was on the ABC today. I'm sure a lot of you would have heard it a little bit earlier this afternoon for about half an hour or so. She's been on Good Morning America. She was on the Today Show. I'm a big fan of that, uh, I have to say that. I work for Channel 9. No, I am a big fan. Uh, worked in California for more than a decade as well. Is based in Brisbane. But thankfully, ladies and gentlemen, she is here with us tonight. Can you please join me in welcoming to the stage Professor Selena Barton.
think I just have to have a glass of water for a second. Well, thank you all for coming out tonight. I really appreciate it. I hope that um, by the end of the evening, you're going to learn a little bit about your brain. I want to thank the Australasian Neuroscience Society for hosting tonight. I think it's a very important event that we as neuroscientists communicate the latest and greatest to the community so that we can actually make a difference. And also, I want to thank um, Tom Wren for giving up his time tonight because I think it's made a big difference for us to be able to bring people out here tonight. So, now, tonight's really all about you because I really love people. And um, I just want to ask you, when you woke up this morning, how did you feel? Like, were you thinking, I have the best possible life? Can't wait to get today started? You know, like, wow, I live in Australia, particularly Adelaide. I mean, Adelaide's gorgeous. I was running along the river there this morning thinking, wow, this place is really nice. Um, or were you thinking more along the lines of, oh, God, I've got to get the kids lunch, and my boss is really annoying, and I have all these deadlines, and oh, my God, my superannuation isn't as high as I thought it was going to be, and God, the house prices, what's going to happen with them? If you're about, like about 90% of my audience, basically people respond more likely to that than to the opposite. So my question to you um, is, do you know what's happening inside your brain when you're stressed out? Can I have the next slide, please? Do you know what's happening inside your brain when it's stressed out, or even your body for that matter? So isn't that remarkable that after 25 years or more of hundreds, thousands, millions of papers that we don't really know what's happening inside our brain or we can't really see it or we, and, that, and that's part of the issue of why I came out of my research lab. So what I'd like you to do now is just to put your arms up, stretch them high, oh, doesn't that feel good? Oh, take a deep breath, oh. Well, you know, I just biohacked your brain. Um, in fact, I biohacked the emotional part of your brain, which is the oldest part of your brain. So, I wasn't always going to be a neuroscientist. No, I'm a country girl from Nanango. And I was actually writing an honest thesis on why people buy cough and cold medications in the pharmacy using logistic regression. And I hold on to your seats. It's, it's, it's thrilling stuff. And about halfway through that thesis, um, basically, I get a phone call from my mother and she says to me, Selena, um, you've got to come quickly, something happened with your sister. So for the next three weeks, my mother and I spent three weeks visiting my sister in a lock-up ward in Walston Park and her treatment was a straitjacket and an overdose of haloperidol. And um, there was one particular moment, I was sitting in this room with the doctor and my sister, she was basically stiff as a board and catatonic from the medication because basically she was a little girl with not very much happening except she told someone that she was hearing voices and I highly recommend you don't do that. Anyway, I shouldn't joke about it, I know. But anyway, so during that moment it became very clear to me why people buy cough and cold medications in the pharmacy didn't really matter anymore and how, and how the brain works. We don't seem to understand how that works very well. So basically, I want to dedicate my lecture tonight and my plenary lecture tomorrow to the AMS, to my sister, Francesca Hoka. She's the reason I'm a neuroscientist today. So I went back and I did my PhD. I, couldn't, I didn't know how to use pipette, I didn't know how to do surgeries, brain surgeries. 
And for the next 10 years, I did a PhD in Queensland, and then I got trained in an amazing neuroscience institute in, at the John Curtin School. Um, and many of those amazing scientists are being awarded at this ceremony in this week, I noticed. So, but I had a baby uh, in 97, and then I was pregnant with my second child. And I was sitting in my office, and I became very enamored with this work that was being done in San Francisco. What you're seeing on this picture here is a neuron, and all of the, the, the reason it's lit up is because their receptors, and at that time in 1999, they could visualize those receptors using this thing called green fluorescent protein. And at that time, when, where I was working, I didn't have the technology or capability of doing that. And so like you do, you move to San Francisco with two babies, you know, and you start a lab there, of course. You know, that's what you do. Anyway, and I was very fortunate to get a position at this place called the Ernest Gallo Clinic and Research Center for Alcohol Addiction. And um, Ernest Gallo started this addiction center. He built, he actually planted the first grapes in the US. And then much to his lawyer's chagrin, he decided to start an alcohol addiction research center. <laughs> and so every year he was the chairman of our board and we had to say what we did lately. Um, but one thing that he did that was remarkable in the 80s when he first came up with this idea, most people were studying the impact of alcohol on the liver. And he kept saying, it's not my liver making me drink. So he actually turned the center into a neuroscience center where we had to understand the neuroscience underpinning alcohol addiction. And then also we were funded by the state of California, so we had to actually come up with a treatment for alcohol addiction. And the director at the time said, I will do it in five years. Right, okay, so they actually approached me um, about a year after I started there to become the director of medications development. They gave me $1 million in one year to come up with a treatment for alcohol addiction. And because I'm a country girl from Menango, I don't know anything, so I say yes. And so then um, I literally did not know anything. <laughs> I couldn't even spell neuroscientist when I started that. Anyway, so the first thing that I started to work on, I put my pharmacist hat on, and I want to tell you, during this, just before this time, I was totally focused on mutating amino acids in the C-terminus of the new opioid receptor. Are you now excited? Um, so that receptor is where morphine binds to. And the person I was working with was the person that was studying those receptors going inside the neurons. And I just loved it. I was like in fairyland because over there you get your antibody overnight and all of these things. So I had a million experiments set up on my lab bench. But I was sitting there going, only five people are reading my papers. How is this going to help my sister? So anyway, I got approached to do this particular job. And um, I took it on like everything else, like seriously. And so what I noticed was, uh, because of my pharmacist training, I noticed that there was 25 years of research that had shown the link between people that are dependent on alcohol, they also smoke, but people that smoke aren't necessarily dependent on alcohol. Now what's the common neurobiological mechanism driving that is the fact that nicotine binds to the neuronal nicotinic receptor. So when you smoke, the nicotine binds to that receptor, releases dopamine and makes you feel good. Right, so that's what alcohol is doing in synergy with those two things. Now I got really lucky. So the day I accepted that position, the next day I flew to Boston to give a talk at the Gordon Research Conference. 
on my previous work. Who was in my session but the person, the scientist that actually discovered Varenicline, which is a drug called Chantex in America and Chantex in, oh no, sorry, Chantex in America and Chantex in Australia. And the data he presented during that session just threw me out of, I just couldn't believe it because the drug wasn't metabolized by the liver. It um, had been used by six million people. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I've got to get that drug and get it into my lab to see if it can work for alcohol addiction. Anyway, but he said to me, Pfizer will never give me that drug because it, you know, my labs contaminate their findings with my dirty alcohol studies. And um, so what I did was I phoned them for two weeks, like for two years. And so therefore my lab was the first to actually get this drug into um, UCSF. So what that meant was, why we were the first to publish is because my lab seriously started working on the animal models of alcohol addiction. Because when I started, we were actually studying social drinkers. We weren't studying people that had been drinking a lot of alcohol. So I actually changed the animal models, which meant that when we got the drug, it actually worked. And this happened very quickly. And so because it had been approved by the FDA, we were able to move fast track that into clinical trials. So in this picture here, you can see that this is a very small proof of concept clinical trial demonstrating how the drug can reduce alcohol-induced activation of the part of the brain that drives the reward center. The other advantage, obviously, outside being on Good Morning America, because we found one drug for two addictions, um, is that we could do very small-scale human clinical trials. Now, we got some good results. We got about a 10% response rate, and I hold them to the seat. It's really big. Um, and at the same time, I was just, um, my, the lab next to me was a young woman who was working with the godfather of neuroplasticity. So neuroplasticity is the ability of the brain to change through training and effort. She, she worked on um, songbird, uh, singing birds, and watching how different parts of the brain will change. And she joined the Gallo Center and set up her lab next to mine. And one day she's passing me in the corridor and she says to me, Selena, do you really think that medications would be all that end all? And I said, yes. And so she took me up to her lab and she said, please come up and have a look. And she actually had adult animals on treadmills and she had the capacity to actually map the changes in the synapses happening in the top part of the brain, in adult brains um, that were exercising. So she planted a seed in my head on my transition back to Australia. Um, this is research coming out of my current lab in Brisbane. So what I want to point out here is that alcohol, sugar, and you know, junky food and stress is actually changing the physical and chemical structure of the brain. I think that's really important to just think about for a second. Um, when I think about that, it, it blows my mind. So that means you coming here tonight and thinking about and listening to what I have to say, if you pick up on just one item and take it and apply it to your life, your brain has the capacity to change. And when you understand that, it, it really is, in my view, revolutionary. So this, this is just demonstrating. This is the prefrontal cortex. This is the front part of your brain. It's the brain where, it's a part of your brain where impulse control sits, where decision-making the short-term leading to long-term goals. 
So for instance, the, to have a resist the second donut sits in this part of your brain. So <clears throat> that's what addiction is. It's an impulse control disorder. The reason why stress and addiction are linked is because stress takes down the prefrontal cortex, which makes impulse control work, which I'll talk to you in a minute. So on my move back from California to Australia, we had set up an experiment where we were trying to understand uh, how, how does alcohol change the brain at the molecular level, at the biochemical level, and we were actually specifically studying neuronal nicotinic receptors. We were actually, we could, I was working with the expert at the Stanford Research International. We set up this experiment where the animals drink alcohol and our control was sugar. Um, and we had another one, unfortunately. Um, but anyway, she rings me, I'm sitting at my desk in Brisbane, she goes, Selene, you won't believe this. Sugar is changing those receptors in exactly the same way that alcohol and nicotine are. I'm like, oh my God, that can't be true. There's no way that can be true, because that's the control, right? Um, so my poor PhD student in Brisbane, because I didn't believe it, he had to go and replicate it all, and then we had to yeah, do all the experiments over a number of years. And so we end up showing that just like veranicline, which binds to nicotinic receptors, this particular drug, Tabex and Chantex actually, can reduce sugar consumption, right? Doesn't that blow your mind? So what that means is prolonged overconsumption of sugar actually changes the physical chemical structure of your brain. It activates the same addictive pathways in the brain that alcohol and nicotine do. So that means sugar, like highly processed sugar, not just in donuts, but that everything that's become embedded in the food chain, since we decided that was bad, um, actually is changing the structure and causing us to be more stressed out and affecting the impulse controls of our, uh, of our brain in the same way that alcohol and nicotine do. And we think it's by releasing acetylcholine, which is our endogenous neurotransmitter that's much like, it's like the, the equivalent of nicotine. So I tell you that because I think it's really important, but sugar, just to like tell you a little bit more about its hidden properties, is that sucrose is made up of glucose and fructose. So it's actually the fructose component of the sucrose that's driving this. So what are, what are its hidden properties? Well, it's, we think of it as calories, but we think, oh, well, that's only 100 calories, right? But to our brain and our body, it's more like 1,000 calories. So basically, it binds to the hypothalamus, the fructose binds to the hypothalamus, and then it makes you feel hungry. So when you go and eat your next meal, you basically don't feel full. And the other thing it does is uh, prevents the release of ghrelin and leptin from your belly, which are the two hormones that signal that you're full. So these are very significant hidden properties that people would not be aware of. Secondly, thirdly, is that it produces so much energy for our body that our body can't handle it. But because our body is a homostatic device, it has excellent ways of dealing with it. And one of those ways is through the fat cells, in, which are adipocytes that line our belly and our thighs. And what it does is it creates, um, it stores the energy. And then if there's, uh, if, there's not, if there's too much energy, those cells divide like cancer cells. And so you can see in this picture here, when you lose weight, that those gas chambers shrink, but they never really go away. And then when we, when we regain weight again, they come back again. So I think that's pretty 
amazing to, to know that. So what that means is that when you're working out and then you reward yourself with a frappuccino, well, mine was sugar to go to after my marathon run, then basically you've got to work out for another 10 times just to get rid of the reward of the frappuccino. Make sense? It's really annoying. But anyway, so this happened to me personally. Um, uh, when I was training for marathons, I, I was actually, you can imagine what happened when I saw all these results coming out of my lab. But I was training for marathons at the time, I was running 19 kilometers, I was really struggling to lose weight because um, I'd had two children, a really stressful lab, and I'm not going to go into all the details of that. But anyway, needless to say, when I got back to Brisbane, I was very unhealthy and very overweight and really struggled. And then when I got these sugar findings, I was like, sugar's my go-to. So I started to reduce sugar, I started to stop sitting as much, etc. And then I got started to get my waistline back again. So sugar does do these things. I also started to get my appetite, I started to feel full again after eating meals. And that hadn't happened to me for like 10 years. So the next thing I want to focus on for you is the fact that I've been studying how alcohol and sugar and all of these things change the brain. Right? But then I discovered um, the work of Ender and Paletti, and basically people use alcohol and sugar as medication. So I've been developing medications for medication, and I decided that I think I may have got a little wrong. So I had to re-gear my lab, and that's because the great understanding that adverse childhood experiences, which we like to call ACE, the short, everyone has an ACE score, Lucky you, <laughs> including me. I can tell you mine because that's how I am. Um, but basically, you can learn about it at acesstudy.org, and I'm happy to send those links to you. This work has been done uh, 25 years ago. It's been replicated all around the world. Let me just show you um, some of the implications of this work and why I retool my whole research lab. Basically, what they went on to show in people that are college educated. Um, this is Kaiser Permanente, the CDC that ran this study. They looked at, um, it's basically a survey where you answer 10 questions. I'll show you a couple of them. You answer, you get, if it, the answer is yes, you get a one. If the answer is no, you get a zero, which means you end up with a score between one and 10. And what they went on to show was the higher the number of adverse childhood experiences, the greater the impact on brain development and health, that then leads to predictions for anxiety, depression, addiction, and all of these things later in life. So these are the kind of questions that they asked in the survey. Pretty, you know, not too bad questions, like did a parent or an adult in the household swear at you, etc. I'm not going to go through it, but let you know that this is completely publicly available. And this is the thing that drove me <laughs> to look at this graph. So these are college-educated people. These are not people in trauma, and violence, and poverty. These were done with people, 17,000 people that had health care membership in California. And I think it's pretty good to show you that the greater the number of uh, adverse childhood experiences, the greater your score, the much greater susceptibility of developing alcoholism. I can show you this for depression, and I can show it to you for obesity. I can show you that basically 80% of women that are IV drug using have high ACE scores. And most of it driven by sexual abuse, for example. So we now have neuroscience brain imaging technology where we can actually show you the brain for the first time. 
And that's the difference. Because when you're working out in the gym and you're, do, and you're doing your biceps, you can actually see, I need to do more, but um, you can get, <laughs> I do, um, you can actually see your muscles changing, you can feel yourself changing, and so you get rewarded for the work you put in. But if I tell you you can change your brain if you wake up in the morning and think of three things you're grateful for and do that for 28 days, you're going to tell me to blow off, right? Because you, don't, you just don't see the changes happening inside your brain. And I think that's the difference. I think knowledge and education and brain imaging technology and the digital revolution are coming to disrupt mental health. And we need to do something because it's not getting any better. So I'm here to tell you that each of us have the capacity to be the boss of our brain. We just have to want to do it, and that's the difference. So how strict, so I want to go back on that one, just one thing to, so if you're going to say, what's the link between um, adverse childhood experiences and what I'm showing you here? This is the brain, sorry, I meant to point that out. So on the left-hand side, on the right-hand side is a normal brain. You're looking at the red for looking at activity in the brain. And on the left-hand side is someone that's ex that suffered from extreme abuse. And you can see deficits in brain activity in those parts of the brain. What that means is, from a human brain perspective, stress actually takes down through neurochemical mechanisms the communication channels that sit up here in the modern human part of the brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, and those parts of the brain are involved in executive function, which is impulse control and decision-making and behavioral control, for example, also empathy and compassion. So you can see and wonder, why does our brain do that to us? Because it's absolutely crazy, because we shouldn't evolve sufficiently to overcome all of this, right? Don't you think? We're literally clever. Anyway, so um, do I just point at it?
So this circuit is set up for our survival. It's really, really good. It's so fast, it happens in microseconds, milliseconds, such that the cat only has to look at something and think, oh my God, it's a snake, I've got to get out of here. Right? So it just flees the scene straight away. That's driven by a circuit in the emotional part of the brain. Um, you've heard of the amygdala, but it's also, it's also tied and wired to the nucleus accumbens and all of these amazing places. They're so old. They're so old and they're set up for our survival. So this is why I'm so passionate about what I do. When you understand that, I don't want to live in my cucumber. Um, but anyway, um, so this part of the brain is so ancient, it goes right back in history um, for, for that very reason, because we want to flee away from things that make us scared. It's um, also, the thing about it is, because it's so old and so hardwired, unlike our human brain, which is taken down by stress like that, this part of the brain loves it. So this part of the brain, um, in the bottom middle part of the brain, is actually prioritizing stress over happiness because its primary job is to keep us alive and it's done a great job for we'll be here tonight. It just doesn't do a great job at driving healthy habits for us, right, unless we have to drive them in ourselves. And that's the principles of neuroplasticity that I like to talk about. So let's just look at how old this thing is, just to get an idea. If when you actually get to see and feel that, you're like, wow. Um, and that's why it's so hard for us to evolve out of it. Um, it's doing a great job. And we're in a modern world where we don't have to flee from snakes and you know, all of these ancient tigers and all of that. Now all we have to worry about is superannuation and house prices and do the kids get a good college and you know, all that stuff. So, if you look underneath, this, this, underneath a tree and you look inside the root of the tree and how it uptakes nutrients, and you look at the synaptic vesicles, so we have vesicles inside our brain, that's how our neurons communicate with each other. They've adapted it from the same kind of apparatus. I can go back to mushrooms, don't go down the psychedelic pathway or ask that on ABC radio today. Because um, there's tons of psychedelic neuroscience happening in America right now. But if you look underneath a mushroom, these mushrooms can communicate to each other across miles. They can turn a, a rainforest into a meadow. And people have shown they actually have action potentials when they're doing that. And what does our brain do? It has a signal, but it uses the same apparatus. And how old are mushrooms? How old are mushrooms? Like, they just follow bacteria. So that's like forever, right? As far as we know, since stardust. So basically, if you look at bacteria, okay, you're going to say, we're not bacteria. And I'm going to say, we have some bacteria inside us because why do antibiotics not work? Well, the bacteria form biofilms, they're so clever, and those biofilms signal across a network using chemicals and peptides that we have in our brain. And now we know the microbiome is, is like producing serotonin, it's affecting our mood. So everything's connected. But we're still just humans, I know we think we're really clever, but we're kind of not in some ways, because we still live with mushroom brain. Anyway, um, and you're going to say to me, I don't believe you, which is fine, I don't mind. Um, so let's just do a little test, because in Adelaide, I know you're all mathematicians. So we're going to do a math test, and it's really straightforward. Oh, I think I gave you the wrong book. <laughs> because I'm in the mango, so I can't do it from my brain. 
Sorry, Menango. Um, anyway, we're going to do a test. Oh dear, I've lost it. Okay, so this is called the working memory test. So what I'm going to do is give you a math problem, and then I'm going to give you a sequence of numbers, and then you're going to say back to me the answers to the math problem, and then you're going to turn to your neighbour and do the number, the sequence of numbers in reverse. So you're not allowed to use your iPhone. You're not allowed to write it down because we are in Adelaide. Brain power. Okay, ready. So the number is, numbers are two. Five, seven, eight, nine, three, one, four. Ninety-nine plus three is. Say it out loud. Great. Now turn to your neighbour and say the number in reverse. <laughs> Come on, ANS, you can do it. <laughs> Trying to follow up on them, but when you're stressed out, that does not happen. 
So, you know, one of the main, main big biohacks is like putting your arms up, being calm, and then going, oh, math problem, easy. I'm just going to sit back and think about what she says, and there's no problem for me because I'm really clever. And then your brain's nice and calm, and so your prefrontal cortex and you're working there and you'll keep all the pieces of information in there and allow you to bring it back. So I think you can immediately see that if kids are coming to school from very bad situations and then we're asking them to sit in the classroom and take in information as if they're coming from a Mozart home, playing Mozart every morning to them, that we're going to have different outcomes. So the bottom line is we're not born a blank slate. Sorry to tell you that, we're not playing off a blank slate. So we're coming into this world completely pre-wired um, and it's from millions of years of evolution Yes, we have a genetic blueprint. That's why you do what your mother does sometimes. Yes, we have epigenetics. So your brain and your body grows up in the environment. If you're growing in utero and you have a stressful situation, it's going to affect your brain development. If you grow up in a loving home, you're going to have a much better chance at not getting addiction and depression later in life. But we now have evidence, and this is the beauty of science, why I just love what I do, is we now have evidence that non-coding RNAs and micro-RNAs are actually, like from the sperm, for example, are affecting the way that genes are expressed that lead to diet-induced obesity for three subsequent generations. And so we're going to have the potential in not too distant future, because it's happening for like these rare diseases like SMA, where they're doing genetic engineering using antisense oligonucleotides that actually help kids that have SMA, the spinal muscular atrophy. It's the first time in history that that's happening. I can see that's going to happen in this space also. Where, and I was just talking to some people in this area. So we might be able to have the opportunity to do genetic engineering on microRNAs and non-coding RNAs to actually improve the chances of all the, I'm not going to swear, I'm not going to swear, multi-generational stuff that we inherited. So let me show you this panel. So this is different types of mothering. What, what we're looking at there is uh, gene expression. So same genes, but in red means those genes are turned off. In green, they mean the genes are turned on. Same genes, but look, totally different expression from two different types of mothering. And it's not all about the mother, guys. Trust me. It's all about the sperm at the moment this year. Um, it is. Yes, finally. <laughs> Okay, so this is, um, sorry, anyway, back to grounding. Okay, so the reason that I came out of my lab is because of neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is the ability of our brain to change. So I don't want you to go home depressed and thinking, oh my God, my days. God knows what I got in my history. So the hope and the thing I absolutely know is that the brain can change forever. There are women doing triathlons at 105. There are men changing their bodies at 90 and winning 200 meter sprints at 93. They were not working out at 89, they won a 200 meter sprint at 93. I know of people that have come from extreme trauma and totally changed their whole mindset and life and that's the total principles of neuroplasticity. The brain has a massive capacity for change. And it's in the things you can't see too. Like we can't even measure some of this stuff because it hasn't even grown into your brain yet. You know, that's the amazing thing about neuroplasticity. Um, Jill Bolt-Taylor's TED talk, she rewired her brain from a stroke 
And the thing that upset me the most, but I love it, is Norman Deutsch's book about the brain that can change itself that everyone knows, but then they think it's only about extreme things like, you know, like learning difficulties or stroke. No, this is about daily living. I want and hope for each of you to have to be happy, healthy and strong, because I think you all deserve it. And this is why I moved into this space. It's what I work on in my lab. We're doing it from every point of view you can think about, from the very basic science all the way through to me getting these lectures and starting podcasts, um, so that you can take this information right this second and wake up tomorrow morning and start differently. Because the brain will do it for you. It just takes, it's just simple, it's just not really easy. So the question, can we re re reboot neurogenesis can we understand neuroplasticity from a molecular level? And this is um, some very recent work from my laboratory where we actually use an anti-anxiety drug called tandusperone from Japan, and we were able to show that we could actually, through a very novel mechanism involving serotonin, we could actually help to prevent the loss of new brain, uh, the loss of brain cells by promoting this particular receptor called 5-HT1A. So yes, um, the mechanisms are starting to be worked out. But for you in the audience that came out tonight, which I'm very, very grateful for, for you today, for your family, for your grandchildren, and for the future, it all starts with your mindset. I took three years to believe it. I didn't believe it. She told me about neuroplasticity and I blew her off. And then I, then I had my own things happen and I was sitting in my lab uh, writing a book chapter on the molecular mechanisms of brain resilience. Your brain can learn anything if you let it. So basically, it all starts with wanting to do it. It starts with your mindset. And it starts with you understanding that you have brain power that you're the boss of. Now, I hope that I was able to make it clear that your brain's the boss because of evolution. I hope I made that really clear. So for you to become the boss, you have to drive in the things that the brain's like pushing you against. Brain loves negative stuff. Damn it. It just does, because it's wired there for, for survival. So for us to change the trajectory to be happy, healthy, and strong, we have to drive those changes with the daily things that we do. That starts with knowing the brain's incredibly plastic, that you have complete responsibility and accountability to take it forward. Yes, there's a lot of stuff that happened. Yes, you can't change it. Yes, all of that. But Yes to the future, because I think we only have one precious life and don't want to wake up and feel fantastic most of the time. So it all starts with um, nutrition and exercise and water, but also you're having a really wicked morning routine. Now why I say that, if you lie in bed tomorrow and think of three things you're grateful for, which sounds a lot like Buddhism and mindfulness, but basically it will drive positive neurochemicals inside your brain. And that's been shown um, scientifically. So all you have to do is try it. And if you can't do it for three days, don't expect to change your life and to get fit and healthy because it's not possible. So we have to start with simple um, things first and then re repeat because the only way to get these new synapses and to reroute things inside your brain is it takes those synapses being pounded upon, just like when you're learning a new language, and then eventually those synapses become hardwired. And you know what the cool thing is? Your brain will do it for you then. Once you've formed some of these habits, you're now using the magnificence of the brain machine to drive those habits for you. 
So next minute you know, after God knows how long, depending on how brain, how reactive your brain is from years and years of mushrooms and stuff. Um, you could, <laughs> I'm serious, uh, for me it took years. <laughs> um, I had a big mushroom brain. Um, but anyway, eventually, with practice, these things will become automatic. So the next minute you know you're waking up and you're putting on your running shoes or you're going swimming or you're really aware of how much sugar you're eating or how much alcohol you're drinking. And, and like, how do you know? Like, how do you know you go for a mile's bar when your boss really annoys you, right? That's what I used to do. Um, and I had no idea that it was like, like worth about 900 calories and 4,000 hours of the gym at the time. So I, I understand this is really, sounds really simple, why we're all still suffering, because that's just the way it is. But, so we need to help everyone, and including myself, and why don't we take the power of technology and make something good out of it? So we've built a game called Tracer, which is still in production. We're developing digital technology to enhance brain, to bring in big data and uh, deep learning and other mechanisms that we can apply to help people break this hugely hardwired stress reward cycle inside our brain. Because each of our brains are completely different and each will derive different things that they need to drive these changes. Also, we're studying at the molecular level, how do we drive this restorative activity? Because basically, this is one of our neurons from my lab. We can label those neurons, we can study them, we map them. I just love them. I've loved them forever. Sorry, ex-husband. No. <laughs> just joking. Um, but the interesting thing is that you can't actually see some of these changes. So I can measure and map what I can see under the microscope. But with neuroplasticity and brain training, we're going to be driving new synapses. So we can't actually see them until we have the, those brains trained. Do you, do you see what I mean? You don't know what you don't know. So I believe there's a little way coming where we're going to combine the best of modern neurosciences with the best of ancient practices combined with genetic engineering, where we're going to be able to tap into some of these microRNAs and make changes that are going to help prevent some of the pre-wiring that's come in to make us really unhealthy. I really believe there's a middle way, and I like to think of personalised medicine as a tapestry that draws all of these things together to make your lives more happy, healthy, and strong. I also started a podcast because I think this information can get to the public and make a, a small difference. Even if I just plant seeds, that's really good enough for me. And it's really made a huge difference in my own life, and so I just wanted to be able to share that information because we've got millions of papers already on different parts of this subject. I wrote a book called Smashing Mindset. I'm in the middle of writing another book um, from all my learning since this time because we keep learning and changing. Um, science is just magnificent. It's bringing in amazing big changes, um, especially with metabolomics and microbiomics and um, epigenetics and non-coding RNA. All of that information is coming to us and we're really making big advances. Um, so I'm really excited about that. So thank you for coming. This is built on the backs of tons of people that have worked with me over the years, um, both here in Australia and in America, UCSF, and um, just a whole lot of other people out even on this slide. And uh, we just want to thank you for coming out tonight and listening to a brain talk um, on a Tuesday evening. So thank you.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, please give another round of applause. Fantastic uh, to have you come out here today. Um, we'll just conduct now a few questions. I'll um, do a few from up here and then we'd love to hear from you. You're obviously here for a reason because you want to be here uh, and learn more about the brain. Um, so I guess, Professor, I'll start it. Um, I was fascinated with my sporting background. That, you know, you relate something to a physical improvement. You can see when you're making those improvements, whereas with the brain, it's difficult to do that, isn't it? Um, and so, is it as simple, like you were talking about, those positive thoughts in the morning to change behaviours, to change the way the brain works? Is, is it as simple as that? Well, I'm oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> That's why you're on channel It's not... This is a very complicated subject. So the reason I go back to that simplicity is because what I discovered after giving hundreds of talks around the world, and like I'm so excited about this, you know, when you have a light bulb moment and then you change your own life, and you're like, oh, I just got to get this to people. But what I what I worked out is that that's just the first step. Is how do I raise awareness? And I do simple things in the beginning because then if people can't implement those simple changes, how can you do the rest? So there's more to it than that. Um, for instance, we know that you can build um, focused memory and attention using Brain HQ platforms, but if you're really stressed out or you're drinking a lot of alcohol and eating a ton of um, bad food, it's just really hard to make those big changes that you want to make because what I know from the brain is that, and I didn't talk about too much, but alcohol and sugar, they basically make that emotional part of the brain, that old, old part of the brain, even more reactionary. You're getting relief in the short term, but then you get really stressed out in the long term because of how it's changing the brain. And so I think awareness, and um, I, I say the morning routine just as an example so people can leave here and do something tomorrow and practice that and just see how hard it is to just even remember to do that every day, right? And so unless you can do one good thing every day and repeat it for 28 days, you can't then expect to change everything, basically. That's why I do that. It's amazing because it seems so simple that the brain dictates things like stress, effect, it affects things like addiction, which I'm sure people will deal with either directly or indirectly with people they know. If we know this though, and clearly you, you know, spent a lifetime doing it, why can't we change it? Why, why is it so difficult for us to, to implement those changes as an industry, as a society, you know, as a human race? Okay, conditioning. So basically, um the brain is a magnificent learning machine and we've been conditioned to believe what we're being told. And um, also, uh, I, I was the same. I developed medications for 25 years from a pharmacist and I really believed that. And it took me three years to change my own mind and then to implement and then move into this other area and meet all the people that are doing that. So I was basically had my blinkers on so I can understand why it's so hard to understand that you, can, you have this power inside you. Um, so it's just, I call it like the next step. So Steve Jobs always says you can only connect the dots looking backwards. And honestly, Tom, if I hadn't done what I'd already done, I couldn't be here on the stage tonight talking the way I am because I developed um, medications. I studied the brain down to bits and pieces. I went all the way down to amino acids and, and everything and, and publishing big papers and working in companies. I've done it all around the world. And, without understanding all the ins and outs of all of that, I wouldn't be able to 
tell you what I know about neurotoxicity. So I feel like everything's a journey, and just like everyone, we're all in a different part of evolution. And people don't really get this and take it on. What they're doing for their family is massive because you're changing things three generations going forward. So just as I told you the bad things, you can also do the good things. So for instance, mirror neurons, we're to get into, but mirror neurons sit up here. And the reason that our families keep replicating things over and over is because we copy each other, which is how we learn to speak and really fast in 40,000 years of history is because of those neurons. And I've just discovered recently by Italian neuroscientists. And so that's why we copy bad behavior too. You see what I mean? So it's like conditioning and it's hard to recondition things, you know, into a new direction. And that's just part of education. And it's like smoking 25 years ago because everyone was smoking. So, I mean, obviously, if you want to know more about the brain and, and change the, the patterns of your brain behaviour, that's one thing. What about if you're trying to help someone else? Um, that, that can't be easy either, particularly if they, if they don't want help, I'm guessing. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, but, as I said, I, I did get a talk, actually, just remember, for the health department, and I remember getting this growth mindset and performance talk. And I had this one person put up her hand and she said to me, what if you have a growth mindset but everyone around you has a fixed mindset? <laughs> I went, oh my God. Okay, um, so basically every, how I look at it is everything starts within yourself. So unless you're willing to make the changes, don't expect anyone else to. And then because of new mirror neurons, they will follow you. So for instance, um, I can talk about my own family situation once I learned all of this information. I didn't even get to tell you about Michael Meany's work, about licking and how we stop, you know, all that, but anyway. Um, so basically you can create environments that will help to make people come around in a sense. So I did a podcast with someone about depression and anxiety and I said, but what if they can't even get out of bed and they don't want to know? And I said, just hold it. I know that sounds too simple, but basically well, from what I know about how everything works, when you hold someone's hand and squeeze them, basically you're getting the release of oxytocin from bonding and you're getting dopamine release, and then you're promoting the side of that brain to actually start pumping more of their own endogenous neurochemicals, right? And it might take time, but as I said on the radio today, basically you might take someone that might be going further down into a positive direction. Um, from the Harvard Grant study, you know that um, basically connections is the thing that drives our health and happiness. I know, which is a horrible thing to say after 80 years of research, but that's what they found. And, and what about, you've obviously got the, the science background well and truly covered, and I'm sure a lot of people might have a science background in the audience tonight, but many don't. How much does personal experience play into what you've done as well? You touched on your sister as well, and how you dedicate um, tonight for her. But, how much does that affect you and understanding for anybody and, and I guess for yeah, you? Yeah, I definitely think it is experiential, um, for sure. Um, it definitely helped for me, but I also think before when I was studying the brain, I was studying it from an intellectual point of view, reading all the papers and trying to understand why my sister had schizophrenia and what we could do to help her. Um, but when I had my own lived experience, not with schizophrenia, I'm not hearing voices right now, um, but with um, depression, um, then I got to really understand what exactly is happening inside the brain. And um, that definitely did help for me to drive some of the 
neuroplasticity techniques and tools that I developed one for myself but also that I put in all my books. What are some of the misconceptions? I mean, I'm sure you've heard it all over your career. What are some of the misconceptions you think there are amongst the public about the brain and perhaps the uh, That it's rocket science, that it can't teach you an old dog new tricks, which is our fault. Because as neuroscientists, we said the brain is fixed. And is that a behaviour? Because everyone says, oh, I'm too old to learn. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, it's too hard. Well, okay, this is why I had a question about this today. And basically, what people, what basically we like stagnation and complacency because that keeps us feeling safe. But actually, in the long term, it actually is dangerous because the brain, because it's an amazing learning machine, actually likes novelty and wants new things. And as you get older, you should actually be getting newer things. And we tend to always start to cut back on things. And um, what you'll see is the people that live the longest uh, have actually taken up things like, uh, you know, like riding a bike in their 80s and um, all of that kind of thing. So basically, you should be doing more as you get older, not less. So that's just the brain trying to save, save energy. And basically, we need the brain to be active to get the motor neurons in our body functioning well. And all those we actually need more exercise than we think. I love that idea because I've been guilty of it as well, you know, too old, I just can't do it, you know, it's too hard, you know, I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing now. But, and I loved your quote tonight, your brain can learn anything if you let it. it, it it's, that, it's that mindset, isn't it? If, yeah. you, if you're willing to do it. Yeah. Like when you put the mass problem, I went, I've got to sit for tonight. <laughs> I know. Um, and I was the same, just saying. Good, well that's good to hear. I used to have triathlon at 48. And I was really unhealthy and overweight. So um, stress had taken over my life completely. So How hard was that? I mean, you know, was that difficult? Was that something you had to will yourself into? Was it a slow process or, you know, did it happen? Did it happen? Um, it was me coming back from America to Brisbane and people were riding their bikes. And I, wanted, I hadn't been back in Brisbane for 20 years and I wanted to integrate that. And all my friends were riding bikes on Sundays and having coffees. And I thought, oh, that looks like fun. I'm going to learn how to use a bike. <laughs> And then I, then I was up in my bedroom trying to, with my cleats on, falling off onto the bed. <laughs> That's how I started. <laughs> well, I mean, it's great though. Like, you know, you were, you're adopting the practices that you preach. Well, I have to because I think you can't give these talks and, and or you, you can't understand it unless you're practicing it. And I, I saw this with a really wonderful colleague of mine who's a brilliant neuroplasticity neuroscientist. But he had, hadn't been doing the work on his body too, and so I think it's hard to deliver the message unless you're out there actually doing it every day. And um, and just from my own perspective, I've never felt this healthy, happy, and strong in my whole life, like my whole life. And it comes from the stuff I'm teaching, but also the stuff I understand. I, I work, I've worked with Big Hoff and a ton of other people that are extreme plasticity people, you know, like your ice man. David Goggins and Amy Seal. So they're like, I am a bit extreme, but, um, but they've shown um, through their work, if anyone's interested, if you want to listen to their work, that they've at least 40% untapped potential. And they've shown it. I was going to say, the brain, it does seem like the frontier, but you know, we're, we're so in tune with physical and what we can do you know, with our physical limitations, but the mental side of things. And the brain capacity, how much more can we learn? How much more potential uh, is there? To be honest, I really don't know the answer to um, I think it's totally untapped. Uh, we're still living with all of this old brain um, that keeps people all locked down and stuck and stressed. And 
anxious and depressed and, and things like that, and just because we've never taught people about that, and people aren't, like I say, people tell me what you did to train your brain today, they can tell me about their Pilates and their yoga and their swimming, but no one can tell me what they're doing to train their brain, and I think that's the frontier that we have to enter now. I think it needs to be healthcare professionals at the front end of where people are meeting people. Um, I think it needs to be in schools and um, helping kids do some of this emotional training themselves. I just think there's a lot for us to do to actually spread some of the information to make life just a little bit less suffering. I was going to say, do you think we need to do more as, um, you know, widely um, the medical professions and perhaps, yeah. you know, help GPs, doctors yeah. to, to know more about that as well? Exactly. I mean, they don't, they're, they're under a lot of pressure um, to see patients all the time and then I think this involves maybe a little bit more than just, you know, a bit more time. I think, I think there's opportunities everywhere to, to do this, but I really fundamentally believe in, in, in the power of people. Um, maybe I'll be on the front line of a revolution in Paris at some point. I don't know, but in one of my previous centuries. Um, but basically, I really believe in the power of people. And I just want people to know that they have the power inside them to do this too. From a sporting context, sorry, selfishly, I, I work in sport. I, I guess to get more out of athletes as well, if you can tap into yeah, that brain. That in That's huge. Oh, there's tons of brain trainers over there on the big, big end sports teams. Um, my, my, my friends, the was the coach for UFC baseball and, and he was applying some of his brain training tools with all of his stuff with baseball very much a mindset again. Similar to cricket uh, as oh, well. Yeah, cricket too. Um, and we you know we hear and learn about life coaches, career coaches, mindfulness coaches yeah. as well. Is that where it's moving, you think? Yeah, I think so. Um, in some ways. I, I still fundamentally believe that understanding how your brain works, how it reacts to stress, becoming aware of how much sugar and alcohol you eat, is really some of the fundamental steps you can do too, um, that are really straightforward and simple, they're not really complicated, and without that awareness, um, it's really hard to make the changes, you know. We'll throw it open to the floor in just a moment, but for those that want to learn more tonight, or, you know, read about your work, where, where's best to go? What, how do they best Yeah, so them? I think my, podcast Shining Minds. Um, I'm very proud of that and it, it's based off my book Smashing Mindset and it's with a young guy and he, I won the pitching competition in Silicon Valley last year and he was running a podcast and I said I need to start a podcast and um, so he helped me and it was really interesting because he's 23 and uh, it, not, a brand, not a neuroscientist talking to a 54 year old woman um, and it was really interesting because I think it created a really nice conversation if you want to understand how the brain works. So the first 10 episodes of what I kind of talked about today, and so you can hear it free, it's on Apple and Stitcher and iHeartRadio. I have a website called selenab.com where I post all my things, and then I also have my book, Smashing Mindset, and I also have a tracing book. And we're about to release our first game um, that we've built called Trace It, and we're super excited. It's been <laughs> taking a long time to get the technology right, but hopefully you'll be able to send secret messages to each other. And then, and when you get them, you have to trace them, <laughs> which means that you're activating your fine motor neurons um, from a neuroscience perspective, and then that activates the premotor cortex, which is a sneaky way of building back the impulse control. 
but I mean, it's pretty nice to have something tangible that you can, yeah. you know, put out to people yeah. to be able to practice. Well, I've seen some amazing results. I mentioned to you earlier, I work in child protection and youth justice in Queensland and now for police, because um, they weren't aware about AC science and that re-arresting people um, can cause more trauma, which makes them more violent and, and more... Susceptible to Yeah, more crime. Um, so we're doing a lot in that space. And to see some of the things where kids that are so, so traumatised because they're getting multiple homes and multiple sexual abuse, and to see them doing some of these things and then being able to sit there still and, and um, understand how their brain works, um, it's just incredible to me, which is really what gets me up every morning. And um, we've got a lot of work to do, but um, I'm really excited about that. ACE science combined with neuroplasticity, I think is going to be, it's going to hopefully do a little bit of disruption in the mental health space. Might throw open, um, I can keep going, but might throw open the floor. We've got a broken microphone, I think, so maybe just bring it in and move around the room. Perhaps just um, stand up so everyone can see you. Hi, um, how are you? Good. Um, this is sort of a pharmacy sort of question as well. Um, I presume you're talking about like a statistical average, um, just like how people get cancer, some of it's terminal, and there's nothing you can do, no matter how many times you pray or um, you know, talk about it or whatever. Um, so just like let's say schizophrenia, like you could try um, you know, brain therapy like a thousand times on someone, but unless you can risk it or something, there's still going to hear voices, oh, someone with like ADHD, and Absolutely. you try that and it won't work, or That's some right. alcohol as well. Absolutely, there's a middle way um, where in acute phases, no doubt the medications play a huge role. Um, so I'm definitely not advocating against that ever. Um, but what I'm, what I'm advocating for is an understanding of what's driving it in the first place. So it's not some random thing that people get that ask for the symptoms. It actually came from a place of trauma and adverse childhood experiences. All of it has more or less. So unless we start to change and understand that cause, we're not going to change um, the outcomes for people that have schizophrenia and bipolar. So from a treatment on an acute chronic situation, of course it's going to take a lot of medication, and, but also it's going to take an understanding that we can actually do some neuroplasticity training. I know some people doing that in Melbourne, for example, because they're trying to improve people's cognition, using brain training so that they can actually implement some of the things that people are telling them to do um, more effectively. Yeah. So I've definitely seen myself um, that medications are not the answer entirely either because that's how my sister died. Yeah. Um, because those medications end up just sedating people. They cause horrendous side effects when implement doses that escalated over many years. Um, we've never really tested other people taking antidepressants for 40 years, what their impact is. Um, so I just, I think there's a middle way, um, and I really believe in a personalised approach. I think, I think you have to get to personalised medicine as much as we possibly can, because everyone's brains are different. As you know, for schizophrenia, it's totally a spectrum. It's just a basket of symptoms, and then we give labels to things because that's kind of thrown in there because it's not this and it's not that. And just really, really quickly, um, 
that thing about the childhood thing is quite interesting. Yeah. I was wondering whether you think people that have some genetic disposition that, oh. that was already there happening in stronger. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So genetically we know that especially for alcohol addiction, and I can't give you the exact number for schizophrenia and psychosis, but basically we know for sure for alcoholism is sixty percent genetically explained. Right? So now, I, the way I can talk to answer that question is psychedelics. So we always talk about the good parts of psychedelics and people get addicted to the experience. But you know what it does too, is it can actually reveal uh, a, a susceptibility to schizophrenia and psychosis that wasn't going to maybe present itself at a faster rate, for example, to answer that question. So for example, um, what I know, uh, is some people might have only had an ACE score of 1 between the ages of 0 and 18, and then they might end up having an abortion or some other traumatic event that happens post-18, and then that can actually then bring out some susceptibility that might have been existing there genetically and epigenetically. So it's just fundamental. Like, when you understand that, it becomes just so much more simple, because at the moment it's such a hodgepodge of things that when you understand that it's driven by these things, then unless we change those things, we're not going to change the outcome. And that's what I'm really passionate about, is actually helping people not be scared by it, but just to be enlightened by it, like smoking. <laughs> and, and then how do we, just reducing ACE score by one, not that we'll ever get rid of it, but, if, but by reducing, using neuroplasticity and medication, genetic engineering, or whatever it's going to be, by one, might be just enough to tip someone that was going to go really badly down depression, anxiety, into maybe less. And then what they're doing, what we're doing then, is also helping all the family members understand the power of this. So, um, and this has epigenetic uh, uh, possibilities for generations going forward. We're basically breaking the chain of evolution. And that's why it's so hard. <laughs> it's simple, it's not easy, because we're breaking some massive million degrees of evolution. Um, yeah, so you spoke obviously about sugar, um, and you kind of alluded to the way society's kind of pushed fat out of its diet. And you also mentioned your running and your triathlon training as well. Um, so you're probably aware low carb, high-fat diets are kind of a big deal for yeah. triathletes at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, the performance outcomes from those studies are pretty consistently showing there's no real benefit to a low-carb, high-fat diet when compared to just habitual carb intakes. Uh -huh. But from a cognitive point of view, um, do you think, or is that an area we need to research in terms of from a cognitive point of view, is there a benefit to getting people to consume more fat than what they are now because we've pushed that into the world oh, of yeah. fat uh, and move away from carbs. Then the carbs ultimately and simplify, but carbs obviously just get broken down as sugar at the end of the day. Yeah, um, it's a great question. Diets are something everyone's like got their own thing about. Um, um, I really believe, once again, that every single body is different. So, for instance, I may not be able to have gluten and someone else can have gluten. So I really think that I, I'm just not a dualist. I'm a non-dualistic person. That's why I put up the middle way. Um, because I think as soon as you go dualistic, then it's like my way or the highway, and I just don't see that working for anybody. 
Um, so I'd see that the same for diets. So some people plant-based, it works really well for them. Some people keto, health spare works a really big time. Some people um, are doing whatever. But what I'm just trying to talk to, talk to is this overconsumption where our body is getting way too much energy than it can, can handle. And as we get older, it's even harder. And the fact that these things like fructose and like this is a lot of you know, consumed over a period of time and alcohol are actually changing the brain. Um, the physical structure of the brain is making it harder to implement the changes that you want to change to be happy, healthy and strong. It just makes it harder to do that same with cocaine and um, opioid, prescription opioids where we're inhibiting pain, but in the end we're getting more pain. Because I studied that for a long time too. So it's just fundamental, it's always counterintuitive. Sometimes you have to do the hardest yards to get the longest benefit. So I know I didn't really answer what you're trying to say, but you're saying if we now put fat back in to reflect and get rid of sugar and then replace it with fat now because we're so deficit, because we've got too much sugar going on, and I don't know the answer to that question um, in terms of what people can actually do. All I know for myself is I start to take out sugar. Not 100%, um, still like I don't now and then, and, <laughs> and all those lovely things. Um, but I did definitely take down a lot of processed food that has sugar embedded in it. I didn't realize low fat strawberry yogurt was worse than that any can of Coke. For instance, um, uh, just to give you one example, and I just gave a lecture in New Zealand about this to the um, Pacific Islanders, where they be. New Zealand currently has the biggest dialysis hospital in the world from sugar-sweetened beverage-induced kidney failure. Um, so, for example, there's one drink over there called Stars. It's got 35 teaspoons of sugar in it, and some of the kids are having three a day. And so what they're doing is they're out in the community, this is the um, New Zealand Heart Foundation, where they're actually taking buckets of sugar and teaspoons um, to, and a can to show people how much sugar is actually in there, and they've got kids losing all their teeth as well. So this is a, like a big deal. It's happening in Australia too, and it's one of the leading causes of driving obesity every day, including diabetes, heart disease, cancer, and many other things. And I haven't told you about this, but we're about to release this new work in brain metastases and cancer that, that came from this work as well. So yeah, it's, it's got a big, it's got a big, Sugar has a big impact on the brain and the body. That's kind of hidden away. Thank you for that. And talk to us has been very informative. I have a question about addiction. You talked about smoking, alcohol, um, addiction. Uh, what's the connection to screen time addiction? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I think it's related to, it's all related to the same thing. It's called the freeze response and avoiding response and um, basically um, as you probably know anyone here that's watched their favorite tv show like i watched the bachelorette with my mother <laughs> ncis yeah my daughter binge watches that i'm a terrible mother um, anyway so for example when you're watching a favorite show and then about 10 minutes before the end of the show they start to show you the next thing and it's like oh i didn't know that was on Right, so basically while you're watching that show, your dopamine levels go down, and so then when you're sitting, it's very hard to initiate movement. So once they've got you, next thing you know, you watch three hours of television. So 
So the same thing as screen time. Think of us like when you scroll through your Facebook feed or whatever. Like you're just going in there to look at one thing and then, oh my God, I've got to be at work. Kind of thing. It's like an hour later. So that's just what's happening inside the brain. The dopamine levels are going down. So it's very similar in terms of a, an addiction in that way. And, and also you will do it despite negative consequences, right? Your text while you're driving, um, all of these different things. So it has exactly the same phenotypes as an addictive phenotype, basically. And uh, I think it's driving all the same pathways inside the brain. But it's very hard for me to get a right to do the screen time. <laughs> but I could try and do it in humans, but they're very difficult subjects. <laughs>
from the bachelorette. Um, but anyway, I, I think these things are totally possible. I've done it for myself. I've been shocked uh, myself. They're simple, it's not easy, you've got to do it every day, you can't do it twice a week, it's not going to do much for you. And doing it every day can be a bit hard and a bit of work, but even if you do 10 minutes of stretching yoga, it's going to help you. <laughs> yoga, Pilates, um, deep breathing, <laughs> and all of these little things, but um, you can do them. Selena, hi. Um, I think I've got a simple question, but... Uh, for your brain to make a good decision, where should it be? Where what, sorry? Your brain. Where should it be parked? Where should it be parked? Yeah. So to make a, a difficult decision, can you, can you be up oh. or emotional? But where, where yeah, is Yeah, I love that question. Um, so what I do when I do, um, I do talks to corporations, um, this is a big deal, right? So people come into your office and you want to tell them off. So I have this strategy called disarming your enemy. <laughs> so because of the millisecond reaction in the bottom part of the brain, you want to put a brake on there to turn it into one second to allow the prefrontal cortex to kick in so it can make a better decision. Because at the moment, we saw with the working memory test and the cucumber, it's off and off to the races. So how do you get power back? Well, you've got to, you've got to train and rewire that part of the brain, right? So what you do, so you're making a difficult decision. Well, let's just talk about a difficult decision with your wife. Hello, wife. <laughs> or partner or whatever, a child. Um, and you want to tell them no to something. So basically, one thing to do is you take a deep breath and basically you give them a big smile. And they're going to be, oh my God, I was expecting to get in trouble. What's going on here? So you immediately disarm them and they get really calm in the process. So then you can then tell them in a way that is less stress, less reactionary from you and they won't know what to do with that because you've already done the power pose before that, right? You put your arms up, you're feeling dominant. I didn't even tell you that's the dominant part of the animal kingdom. So you're raising your testosterone, you're feeling really powerful and confident. And then you go and smile at someone and then basically you biohacked that old part of the brain. And now you have your whole prefrontal cortex engaged so now you can make really good decisions. So we can do that every day, basically, um, for ourselves. And you just have to practice it and see what I mean, and then just try it out. Because I think we're all N equals one experiments in some sense. Does that make sense?
And so that helps to calm the brain to, because what is anxiety? Anxiety is just the, the emotional part of the brain has become super wide and reactive over a long period of time. And so when you start to do these daily practices, basically you're calming down that part of the brain and you're starting to reroute it and letting the prefrontal cortex take over again. Yeah, well, they're all genetic, you know. Yeah, totally. But we, we, but we all are now. We're all on the spectrum, hate to say. In a way, I understand, like, I understand what you're saying, that autism has a, is a genetic basis, but nearly everything does have a genetic basis. And so the consequence of the behavioural traits you're describing is how their brains um, are connected in different parts in different ways to say someone else. Yeah, exactly. Totally. But so each of us have different aspects of that. It's, it's kind of what I'm trying to allude to. You know what I mean? Like each of us are wired completely differently and you can call it autism and I can call it I've got a stressed out brain. Um, but, but that wiring is the same kind of concept in a way. So um, neuroplasticity um, offers some opportunity in that space. I don't know how much yet, because we have to do proper evidence-based clinical trials to look at that. But they definitely, I've seen it anecdotally um, with people practicing those principles with parents that have kids on the spectrum. Just for that. Thanks. Um, you spoke about uh, mindset, nutrition, and exercise. One of the terms you had up uh, on the slide was sleep, which hasn't been touched oh, on. Yes. Uh, which I'm really interested in, and perhaps the, uh, the negative aspects of it, and also I've read that the, uh, the, the hours you get to sleep before midnight are far more important than the ones after, even if you do get your eight hours of sleep yeah. before midnight. So just uh, yeah, curious to know your thoughts on, on that in 25 words or less. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I do speak too much, so I agree with you. Um, so basically Matthew Walker's work out of Berkeley has demonstrated for the first time actually discovered the lymphatic system of the brain um, and it tracks the blood vessels in the brain. So like we have lymph nodes here, we have it in the brain. And what does sleep do? So they demonstrated that sleep is the time when the brain takes all the toxins, because think of how active it is, it's creating dead proteins. Uh, the, the lymphatic system during sleep is open to, to transport those toxins out of the brain. And they've shown people that are sleep deprived are not able to do that. So that's how you get accumulation of parks and tangles. So sleep is that important. And they, and they recommend that you have seven to nine hours sleep a night. I can't speak very much to before midnight, after midnight, because there is some genetic basis for people that are night owls and larks. Um, and, and I've seen that too within families. Um, but you can definitely shift it, for sure. Um, but um, sleep is fundamental. And when you don't get enough, and, and then stress is driving that too. Lack of exercise is driving that too. What you eat and drink is driving that too. So they're all wrapped up together. Not drinking enough water. Um, all of these things just are foundational, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That's how I look at it from a brain perspective. And sleep is, it's like you can sleep, but if you're still eating badly and then taking sleeping tablets, then that's not going to be good for you either. So one thing I want to touch on here is that people are talking to me about um, sleeping tablets and Alzheimer's. And the thing about sleeping tablets, um, I prefer exercise to sleeping tablets because um, 
um, only because, and, you know, I'm not saying one or the other, I'm just saying why I say that is because sleeping tablets have a long-term target of GABAergic, uh, into GABAergic inhibitory neurotransmission in the brain. So you have two major neurotransmitters, glutamate, which is excitatory, and GABA, which is inhibitory. And so it targets that pathway to help you sleep, right, to turn you down. But think about that. If you're doing that through a chemical all the time, then you're going to be changing your glutamatergic neurotransmission system too. So everything's a basic kinesthetic device. And I fundamentally believe that the brain has a lot of things that are there to heal us. Because it's got billions of synapses, circuits and trillions of synapses. And you can even tap into your own DMT. You don't need to go to ayahuasca ceremonies. Just saying. <laughs> We'll leave it there. I might just finish. Um, obviously, you're in Adelaide. I think you're doing a lecture here tomorrow morning. But um, just tell us, what's next for you now, short term, I guess, long term? Oh, 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 my goodness. Too big a broader question. You don't really want to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I fell in love with somebody um, <laughs> <laughs> um, after divorce. So it took a lot of brain training, trust me. Um, <laughs> so that's pretty my new gender right this second. Um, outside that, um, in terms of science and neuroscience, um, we're, we're actually fundamentally mapping um, the neuroplasticity molecular machinery. We've recently discovered that prolonged consumption of sugar drives um, brain cancer development, and that was a shock, and we're looking at all the tumor microenvironment and how we can target that. We're also developing a mobile app for breaking the stress reward cycle, plus a game called Trace It. I'm also building out my Shining Mind podcast for women on the rise, but it's also for men because I love women and men, and I think we and everyone we need to go together. But what I discovered through that process is that um, I'm trying to shine a light on the beauty of people because I actually see beauty inside every single person that exists on the planet. It's just been buried under a lot of evolution, and I like to scrape back and find all the diamonds. And I use my podcast to interview people that have made massive change. So, for example, um, Fiona Simpson is one of the leading prostate cancer researchers, in, uh, head and neck cancer researchers, and she just discovered that stentil actually helps to keep these receptors on the tumors, and now the antibodies combined to them with really expensive antibodies. She was addicted to heroin in Scotland, ladies and gentlemen, and she shares that on my podcast, and she's been to Cambridge and to Scripps, and, and her changes are massive, and, People like that, so I just like to, it's called Shining Mind because I'm shining a light on the beauty of people and helping people see that anything is absolutely possible once you set your mind and intention to want to have a happy, healthy and strong life. It's been a great message that we've all been able to enjoy tonight. Thank you so much for being here. Ladies and gentlemen, if you please. Thank you so much. That was really brilliant. So on behalf of ANS, um, you did such a brilliant job sharing South Australia uh, with our South Australian community your message and Tom, you emceeing for everyone. So we wanted to share a little bit of South Australia with both of you. So we have a couple of gifts. So um, we've got some flowers from the Adelaide Hills for Selena um, and for Tom beautiful bottle of Barossa Valley Red. So I don't know if you've had a chance to enjoy our wine here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not a 
know if you've had a chance to enjoy our wine, Selena, but definitely check some of it out here. Um, and then also really special, um, there's a, a business called the Jam Factory here in Adelaide, um, and they do beautiful artisan work, so they showcase a lot of local South Australian artists, um, and they also are really famous for their glasswork. So we've gotten each of you a piece. So for Tom, we have a paperweight by Karen Cunningham. So I'll just ask Jess if you pass that over. Um, and for you, Selena, we've got a set of glass bowls by um, Cross Lake and, and oh, Peddler. Thank you very much. Thank you. Just quickly, thank you to all some fantastic questions. I'm sure that Brett and I were really outstanding. So thank you for all being here, being so attentive and so respectful. It's very much appreciated. And finally, thank you to PhD student Jess Sharkey, who is our roving microphone. And bye. <laughs> And thank you to all of you. We hope you enjoyed your evening, um, and please stay tuned for other events from ANS. They have a great social media presence, so you can follow them on Facebook and Twitter and see what members of the society are up to, what research is going on here in Australasia, and what events we have coming up, and how you can be part of Australasian neuroscience. Thank you.